Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast for medical students and all learners. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, and Joyce Sow. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome to one of our last episodes in our endocrinology series with someone whose voice you're already familiar with, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik, who is our incredible guest discussant on our calcium episodes. As a reminder, he's an endocrinologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a medical educator at Harvard Medical School. Today, our case presenter and scriptwriter is a new voice you haven't heard before. This is Jordan Saeed, who's a fourth-year medical student at HMS, who's interested in medical education, medical dermatology, as well as rheumatology. Today, we'll be talking about transgender medicine with a specific focus on the medical management of gender-affirming hormone therapy. Are you guys ready to run the list? I'm ready. Let's do it. Awesome. So normally we start our episodes off with a case, but for this episode, we thought it would be a great idea to first establish some terms we'd use. Dr. Hammondvik, could you provide us with our working definitions for sex, gender, transgender, and gender-affirming hormone therapy? Yeah, I would be happy to. And these are very important terms for understanding what we're going to be talking about today. So sex is what we use to refer to the dichotomous designation, usually at birth, of a person as male or female, usually based on the appearance of the genitalia, although sometimes we need additional supporting information, looking at the gonads, looking at the chromosomes, looking at the hormones, and so on. It's basically things that we can see or image or measure that goes into sex. But gender, or more specifically, gender identity is a different thing. That is really one's deeply felt psychological gender identification as a man, as a woman, or as something else. And this is different from gender expression, which is the external manifestation of a person's gender identity. Things like behavior, dress, grooming, hairstyles, those types of things. And typically, the sex and the gender identity match, but in certain cases, that is not the case. We use the words transgender or gender non-binary to refer to people who have a gender identity that is different from the sex recorded at birth. I'm going to be using the word transgender, but really, there's a whole group of people who are gender non-binary, so they don't identify within the traditional spectrum of male or female. And I will lump those together in the word transgender, but just to be aware that this is a large group of people that fall under this bucket. And most people who are transgender will go through a gender affirmation process, which is a process that they go through to change their gender expression or their physical appearance to better align with their gender identity. It's different from person to person what this process looks like. In many cases, though, it can involve the administration of exogenous sex hormones, such as estrogen or testosterone. And this is what we call gender-affirming hormone therapy. And the goal really is to promote a physical appearance and specifically help the development of secondary sex characteristics that is better aligned with the transgender individual's gender identity. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. Excellent. Thank you so much for explaining those terms. It's helpful for us all to get on the same page. Now let's turn to our case. Jordan, can you share our case for today? Absolutely. Our case today is Miss T, who uses she, her pronouns. Miss T is a 17-year-old transgender woman with a history of asthma who is referred by her pediatrician to the endocrinology clinic to establish long-term care. 
She has not yet received any medical or surgical management for her gender transition. She has a supportive family and is interested in starting gender-affirming hormone therapy soon. Great. Thanks, Jordan. So, Dr. Hammond-Vick, first, how do you approach new patients like this one who are coming to establish care for gender-affirming hormone therapy? Yeah, thank you for asking that. The first visit with the patient is really, really important. This is my opportunity to build rapport with the patient and really create a space that is safe that is open for the patient to raise any concerns or any questions that they have. And this is particularly important because many patients may have had interactions with the healthcare system in the past that were less than ideal. So setting the stage for a good relationship with the patient is really important. In terms of what I actually ask, I, I obtain a complete medical history, and that is to assess primarily for issues that might complicate hormonal or surgical interventions, things like menostromboembolism or cardiovascular risk factors. Hormones are pretty safe, but it is important to know about any comorbidities, and that is you know, the case for all medical evaluations for transgender or cisgender patients. But then I spend some time obtaining a gender history, and that is basically to try to ensure that the patient fulfills the criteria for initiation of hormone therapy. There are diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria in the DSM-5, and part of the important criterion there is to ensure that the patient strongly identifies as a gender different from the sex recorded at birth. And that can manifest in a variety of ways, and those are the questions that I ask. There are very few things that would mimic gender dysphoria. There are some cases of body dysmorphic disorder or psychotic disorders that have been on the differential diagnosis for gender dysphoria, but those are pretty rare. I spent also some time evaluating for the consequences of being part of a minority group. So things like discrimination, marginalization, and stigmatization in our society. So I asked questions about how the patient is doing in school or their work situation, their living situation. There are pretty high rates of homelessness, so I think it's important to inquire about that. I ask about any involvement in transactional sex practices, any drug use, any bullying or violence from peers. And I then go on to talk about the sexual practices and sexual preferences of the patient. Some of the interventions that I am going to recommend might actually change the patient's sexual function. So it's important for me to know what's important for them and what is not. For example, erections. Many transgender women find erections to be a source of dysphoria, but many other transgender women might actually enjoy using their penis for sexual interactions. So that is important for me to know. Similarly, I do want to know about fertility plans because, again, that might be affected by my intervention. As with many issues, transgender care is a multidisciplinary process, and in particular, this patient is less than 18 years of age. So in pediatric transgender medicine, we typically always involve a mental health provider. In adults, that's not a requirement. So knowing who the team is is, is important, so I ask the patient about that. And then finally, we start to talk more about the specifics of gender-affirming hormone therapy, and this is where I spend some time trying to figure out what the patient's goals are, what are their expectations, and then I can use that as a springboard to talk about what actually is possible. And I also spend time talking about the expected time frame of the physical changes. Great. Thank you for walking us through the very important conversations to have when you first establish care with a patient seeking gender-affirming hormone therapy. So let's suppose that our patient ultimately decides to start gender-affirming hormone therapy after meeting with you. What are some hormonal agents you would use and, accordingly, what labs would you check during this process? This is a transfeminine individual, so someone who wishes to feminize their body. And in that setting, we rely on estrogen. Estrogen helps to induce the secondary sex characteristics like breasts and the redistribution of body fat more towards the hips, for example. 
It also helps with softening of the skin and it ends up leading to testicular atrophy. So we can give estrogen either as injections or we can give it as a transdermal patch. We can give it as tablets. I do get a lipid panel because there are some changes that can occur in the lipids with treatment. So that is part of my sort of basic set of labs. The interesting thing about hormone therapy in transgender women is that there is negative feedback from estrogen on GnRH and FSH and LH production. So that will in turn lead to a reduction in testosterone levels. But it turns out that the hypothalamic pituitary testicular axis is really resistant. So testosterone levels actually will remain above desired levels even when the estrogen levels are right where I want them. So we can address this in a few ways. We can give a GnRH agonist which eventually will lead to very low FSH and LH levels and therefore very low testosterone levels. Or we can give spironolactone. Spironolactone blocks the testosterone receptor. We tend to go with spironolactone more more commonly because it's cheaper, but in adolescence, we use GnRH agonists to suppress puberty. Most medical doctors are very familiar with spironolactone because we use it for its properties in blocking the mineralocorticoid receptor, for example, in heart failure. And in that setting, gynecomastia is a side effect because it blocks the testosterone receptor. In this setting, we are using the drug for the androgen receptor blockade. So any blocking of the mineralocorticoid receptor would be sort of a side effect in this scenario. So things like potassium and blood pressure issues are something that we need to keep an eye out for. So I do get a potassium at baseline. By using spironolactone or a GnRH agonist, we can use estrogen at slightly lower doses. And it also helps with reducing the hair growth. It helps decrease the loss of scalp hair. And so it's a very important component of transgender hormone therapy. We might get other labs in addition to the potassium and and creatinine and the lipid panel, depending on the patient's specific medical history and social history. I generally like to get a full metabolic panel and a hemoglobin A1c, and I generally also test for HIV in, in line with CDC recommendations. Once the patient has been established on hormones, I generally see them every three months and I check the estrogen level every three months to make sure that it's in the target, which is the the target range is the normal female reference range. And typically I aim for around 150. And I also check testosterone levels every three months and they should typically be below 50 or so. And at the same time, I'll check potassium and creatinine. And once I have achieved good therapeutic levels, I might space out labs to once a year. And after a few years, it's recommended that you get a prolactin level. There have been cases of prolactinomas that appear in the setting of estrogen therapy. Perfect. Thank you for bringing us back to the basics of endocrine physiology. So let's say that our patient was a transgender man, someone who's transitioning from female to male. In this case, what hormones and labs would you order for them? Yeah, so in a transmasculine individual, so someone who wishes to masculinize their body, we can actually treat with testosterone alone. And we can give that in a variety of ways, typically either as a transdermal gel or a transdermal patch or as injections. And with testosterone, you get a secondary male characteristics, things like an increased muscle mass, increased body hair, and also scalp hair loss. And menstrual periods generally stop and the clitoris will, will grow. So you will get clitoromegaly. And it turns out that in those who have ovaries, the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis is very easy to disrupt. Just a little bit of testosterone will generally shut down the axis. And an example of that is polycystic ovary syndrome, where testosterone levels are a touch high and they end up with oligomenorrhea. 
In this case, I'm bringing testosterone levels up to the normal male reference range. So you typically get total amenorrhea without any, any adjunct. You don't need to add like a GnRH agonist or anything like that. And so at baseline, I usually get, again, a lipid panel, and I will also get a hemoglobin because testosterone can lead to polycythemia. Again, I might get additional labs depending on the patient's history, and typically I will, will get a metabolic panel, a hemoglobin A1c, and an HIV test. Similar to transfeminine individuals, I will see patients who are receiving testosterone every three months, and I get hormone levels and make sure that I titrate the dose until the levels are within range. And once they are stable, I might see them just once a year and check uh, hormone levels at that point, as well as a hematocrit. Great. For each of these agents, how quickly do we expect secondary sex characteristics to develop? And do they come in a progressive order, such as in puberty, or does it come all at once? The key here is to know that the changes are slow to appear. So this is where I spend a lot of time with the patient to set expectations, and the patient really has to be patient. <laughs> the onset of the effect of gender-affirming hormone therapy can take months, and the maximum effect usually takes years. It's also important to know that some things will not change. For example, in a transgender woman, it is unlikely that the male bony structures, things like their shoulder size, their facial bones, their Adam's apple or laryngeal prominence are going to change much. Those will probably stay the same. And similarly, in a transgender man, there probably will not be any longitudinal growth. The patient will not get any taller. So in a transgender woman, the things that you might see early on would be things that are very hormonally mediated. Things like libido and erections will tend to be reduced or go away. Later on, after maybe six or 12 months, that's when you might start to see some decrease in the muscle mass, softening of the skin, body fat redistribution, breast growth, and testicular atrophy. For a transgender man, there are some early effects there too on fat redistribution, cessation of menses, and clitoral enlargement. But many of the other effects can take a year or more, things like increased body hair, scalp hair loss, or increased muscle mass. I see. So continued counseling on the time it takes for visible changes to take place can really set the right expectations for our patients. Jordan, can you tell us a little bit more about what happened to our patient in our case? Sure. So returning to our case, our patient, Miss T, started topical estrogen and oral spironolactone and returns to clinic for follow-up after a few months. She reports episodic right-sided headaches that are severe and only remit with silence and laying down in the dark. Great. Thank you. So Dr. Hammond-Vick, this patient now has some side effects. What do we do and what other side effects can she experience while on estrogen as well as an anti-androgen agent? Yeah, this patient appears to have worsening migraines on estrogen, which is a side effect and can be tricky to manage. We might consider uh, reducing the dose or consider some migraine treatments for her. Other side effects that we think about with estrogen would be blood clots. There might be mood changes. And we also are concerned about underlying conditions that might get worse with estrogen, things like autoimmune conditions like SLE, hypertension, breast cancer, or prolactinomas. Excellent. And if we were talking about the case of a transgender man, what side effects are common in that case and how are those managed? Yeah, in a transgender man, the side effects of testosterone are the same that you might see in a cisgender man. Things like high hematocrit or sometimes changes in lipid panels and, and some, some weight gain. But the main concern that I have is pregnancy because there might still be the possibility of getting pregnant even though one is taking testosterone and testosterone is teratogenic. So we talk about contraception. Finally, there's a lot of concern about potential increase in myocardial infarction and stroke. So that's something I might also be on the lookout for and make sure that I control other risk factors. 
Okay, so our patient, Ms. T, she's also curious about the risks of long-term gender-affirming hormone therapy. What do we know about long-term effects of this treatment? Yeah, unfortunately, we really lack good long-term data. The data we have is limited by small populations and a lot of variability in the hormones that were given. And sometimes the follow-up is too short to really make any meaningful conclusions. And the design is almost always retrospective. But in general, what we see is that the mental health outcomes show impressive improvement. People are very happy to go on hormone therapy and feel better. But there are some potential concerns that actually haven't fully panned out. Things like breast cancer or other hormone-responsive cancers or osteoporosis. Those are probably not so much of a concern, but the risk of venous thromboembolism with estrogen is real, and there might also be effects of estrogen and testosterone on cardiovascular outcomes, although the data is quite variable. Great. So, Jordan, let's get back to you. What happened with our patient? All right. So our patient was prescribed sumatriptan for migraine abortive therapy in the future, and the dose of estrogen was slightly reduced. One year later, she comes back, and she had satisfactory breast development, skin softening, and decreased muscle mass. She's controlled some weight gain with regular exercise. She's also begun talking with a surgeon about her options for gender-affirming surgery. She's in care with psychiatry as well, and is doing well socially. All right. Thank you, Jordan. So, Dr. Hammonvik, beyond gender-affirming hormone therapy, how else can physicians and other healthcare workers best support our transgender patients from a medical perspective? Well, there are actually a variety of medical needs that are specific to the gender affirmation process that require the input of a variety of healthcare professionals. Some examples might include mental health. There are high rates of psychiatric disease from being part of a minority group, things like depression, anxiety, and and PTSD. Social work can be helpful to assist with legal steps like changing the gender marker on the passport or coming out to friends and family or at work or you know how to deal with not passing in society. Many patients might need a voice therapist, but I think the most important thing for healthcare providers to be aware is that transgender people have healthcare needs that are in large part identical to those of cisgender people. Routine health maintenance needs are very similar between cisgender and transgender individuals. So all healthcare professionals should be ready to provide care to these patients, including those who are not in a specialty where they will be providing gender-affirming care. They should also be providing care in a compassionate manner and learn about the, the types of issues that these patients may have encountered in previous encounters with the healthcare system, as well as the hormones and the surgeries and so on that they may have undergone in the past. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate that point. I think it's a great reminder for us, even as early trainees, when we're not necessarily planning on going into endocrinology or planning on actively managing patients with gender-affirming hormone therapy, that we have a role to play. And it includes both, one, teaching ourselves about the medical, psychological, as well as social concerns of these patients, and number two, providing person-first care. So to wrap up, Dr. Hammondvik, do you have any pearls to share with us? Well, I guess the main points would be that gender-affirming hormone therapy helps basically by making the physical appearance more congruent with the gender identity. Typically, gender-affirming hormone therapy involves giving estrogen or testosterone to feminize or masculinize the patient's physical appearance, but it's not perfect. It's slow in onset and often is not complete, so many patients do desire to proceed with surgical interventions. But the good news is that hormone therapies are pretty safe and the the benefits, especially on, on mental health, are great. But there are side effects to be aware of, and they are in large parts the same side effects that we think about when using these hormones in cisgender populations. Great. And Jordan, do you have any other pearls that you learned along the way to add? 
Yeah, I think two themes were one, that gender affirming hormone therapy is just one aspect of the care of a transgender individual. It's so important to make sure that a patient is well connected to other providers that are instrumental to their care. So just primary care, pediatrics, surgery, psychiatry, and so forth. A second major theme is that transgender individuals are significantly disproportionately affected by the social determinants of health. At every visit, it's so important to always assess the patient's social history. Great. Thank you so much, Jordan and Dr. Ham and Vic for joining us on Run the List today, especially for teaching us about gender-affirming hormone therapy and transgender medicine overall. For our listeners, we look forward to seeing you next time on our next endocrine episode. If you like this episode and want to continue learning with us, be sure to check out our weekly handouts and tutorial summaries on our website and our Twitter for helpful graphics and space repetition of episode content. See you next time.